It's Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence B. DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History. I'm Benjamin Cothra, professor of history at California State University, Fullerton. Outspoken features interviews and discussion on history, culture, and current events, along with excerpts from the Center's oral history archive. On this episode, we visit with Sam Stevenson, documentarian and scholar of photographer W. Eugene Smith, and the 2017 Hansen Lecturer in Oral and Public History. There once was a time, the mid-20th century, when the camera came into its own. No longer burdened by boxes on tripods, intrepid photographers with their 35mm cameras could go places photography had not gone before, and their work could quickly be seen around the world. It was the golden age of photojournalism. The names made the times, gave them their look, usually in majestic black and white. In magazines like Life and Look, and through the wire in newspapers the world over. No television until 1948. Radio had no pictures. Movie newsreels quickly came and went. Robert Kappa, Margaret Burke White, Gordon Parks, Alfred Eisenstadt, John Mealy, and W. Eugene Smith, one of the greatest of them all. His arresting photographs beginning in the humid World War II Pacific, roaming to a small town in Colorado to photograph a country doctor, or to South Carolina to document a midwife's effort. These photographs helped define documentary. His photo essays in life created a new genre, a new way for photographs to tell a story. But by the mid-50s, Smith had quit life. He quit his family, too holed up in a commercial loft on 6th Avenue in New York's Flower District, there was little to hold back his obsessions. A never-ending darkroom quest for the print that showed not what had been there when Smith pressed the shutter, but what he saw there, an important difference. The intimacy of midnight and after rehearsals and jam sessions by jazz musicians, for whom the loft above Smith's was a seedy godsend, Drums, multiple pianos, no neighbors, a central location in the city after hours. Then the long view out his windows, life as it was lived on the streets of the city, flowers and snow, umbrellas in rain, deliveries made in the summer heat, a lone figure crossing a rain-swept 6th Avenue at dusk, the automobile traffic's headlights and neon signs just taking effect. And Smith, at the center of this dichotomy between the intense and intimate, and the distant and observed. His own life broken, perhaps his war wounds not healed. A man who rigged the entire building with microphones and recorded reel after reel of music, radio programs, stairway chatter, a disordered life documented with an obsession that matched his darkroom doings. And years later, two decades after Smith's death in 1978, another quest began, a new obsession, the work of two more decades, interpreting the images, making sense of the tapes, asking what it all meant, who Smith was, whether he could be known, whether any of us truly can be, no matter what we leave behind. This was Sam Stevenson's quest begun at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies, his obsession, resulting in major exhibitions, books, and a promised definitive biography on Smith that turned out to be much less and a great deal more than that promised doorstop could ever have been. Sam Stevenson came to Cal State Fullerton as the annual Hansen Lecturer in Oral and Public History to discuss his latest Gene Smith's Sink, A Wide-Angle View, based on hundreds of interviews with people who knew Smith well or barely at all. He interacted with students and faculty, gave a thought-provoking talk, shared a few meals, and sat down for an interview for the DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History and Outspoken. I asked Sam about his own origins in North Carolina. I was born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, like six or seven weeks premature, and so I was born uh, 19, August 5th, 1966. 
family was living in a small coastal North Carolina town called Washington, North Carolina, which is um, where I would have been born if I hadn't been so premature. Um, and that's where I grew up and graduated from high school, Washington High School, um, small, uh, well, it was, uh, yeah, small public high school, about 50% white, 50% black uh, in the coastal plains of North Carolina. Um, and my parents lived there in the same house for 50, uh, 51 years. And, um, um, and just recently moved to assisted living in a nearby town. So that little town, um, meant a lot, um, to my, uh, I think to what I'm doing now. Um, it was just kind of a thread, I think that connects all the way back to that little town. I'd like to learn more about that. When well, in public history, we have a fancy term called place consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's sort of trying to figure out what makes a place a place and also what influence a place has yeah. on on the people who come. Right. So, Well, um, this is important. Um, for me, actually, I'm working on a new manuscript that I'm about three-fourths done, and I'm calling it Which Direction Home? So it's kind of like, what is home, you know, for me, you know, but for really for all of us. And um, definitely that little town is home for me. I mean, it was um, very important in so many ways, I think the light, the flatness of it, it was tabletop flat. Um, the Most of the area when I was growing up had been cleared for agriculture, you know, by slaves, you know, originally. Um, and so there was horizon, you know, in every direction, you could see horizon. There was a lot of water, there was three miles of open water, brackish water right there. Um, um, so it was half, Freshwater, half saltwater, we had still dolphins, stingrays, lots of marine fish along with freshwater fish and, and, and bird, all kinds of waterfowl. Um, um, so I was used to looking and seeing a long, uh, wide horizon. Um, and then I think the racial makeup is 50% white, 50% black. Um, even though it was pretty equal, you know, you know, there were, it wasn't equal. It was equal in numbers only. Um, and I think I picked up on that from a very young age. I, I was, um, I was part of, I guess, what some people call the integration honeymoon period. I went, started kindergarten, I guess, in the early 70s. Um, integration occurred just a few years early in this, earlier in the, Six, late 60s and I was part of the honeymoon when everybody thought this is actually going to work you know and um, and so I went to school with um, kids and also the the size of my town meant that I went to school from K through 12 with basically the same people you know you can look at my kindergarten yearbook or whatever it was we had and you see the same people in my senior year in high school white and black you spend 12 years with somebody you pretty much by the end know that everybody's in the same boat you know the sorts of things you're dealing with I mean it's like it's about as equal as you can get you know it's about as integrated as you can get even though there were there were substantial inequalities you know no doubt about that but um, so that was kind of my background and my parents were very supportive of integration. My dad was actually on the, the head of the school board when when the two school systems, the black and white, were integrated. And they were, um, so a lot, a lot of being white, um, a lot of their friends when there was integration went to private school. A lot of the kids, the white kids, went to private school. And my parents were um, dogged and, and the belief that that should not be the case. And so we all 
stayed in public school and then they did as much as they could to keep white people from going to private school. Um, so I, I sort of had that in my blood as well. And uh, um, so um, I believe that sort of background, you know, has made its way into um, my work um, and still still does. And I'm still sort of trying to come to terms with that and figure out that because I'm not sure it still happens that much today. Uh, I don't know. I'm probably, I could be wrong, but these little towns... I'm not sure produce forward-thinking people like they used to. I think most of them have moved like me. You know, you you live in Durham, North Carolina, and you might as well be in Brooklyn in terms of the voting. You know, Obama got 70% of the vote. Um, So did Hillary Clinton. Um, And, you know, it feels like these little towns, um, which are now... You know, flipped the other way. Um, not sure they're um, producing like they used to, um, and I don't. I don't know how to turn dial that back, but it seems like something we need to um, investigate. Um, and uh, um, because I wasn't the only one, you know, I wasn't. I mean, the the history of people. Not that I'm some sort of perfect human, but. But the history of people moving from small rural places to cities and uh, is widespread, you know. And I think our certain problems we have now with our um, gerrymandering and and, uh, um, and politics are recovering from that. Many of the characters in Gene Smith Sink, some of them from North Carolina. Mm-hmm end up going to the city for whatever reason, right? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I did in my office uh, at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke is I had a big map um, dry-mounted and hung on the wall with, with uh, you know, foam, foam board uh, backing. And for everybody that was in that loft that we documented, there was like nearly a 1,000 people by the end, um, we tried to find their birthplaces and we put pins for their birthplaces and numbers and had a corresponding um, um, list of who, who put the numbers, who they were. And it was all over the map. You know, it was all over the map. Um, and they all walked through the stairwell in New York City um, from all over the map. So I, I like to talk of it as kind of like a funnel you know, people were everywhere and they ended up going up the stairwell. And the question I like to ask, which I'll probably will, you know, every time I talk here, is what other uh, stairwells or doorways do we have where um, a thousand people from all walks of life, from all over the map, could walk through that's not an enterprise or an institution? What is there? And I like to throw that question out and seek answers, and um, and there aren't many. Most people can't. It's always an institution or an enterprise. Universities, I think, are doing. That. I mean, you're, you know, Fullerton has a doorway like that somewhere, or a stairwell. Um, malls, you know, malls are are like that. But that, but but what what does that? That's not a um, an enterprise or an institution. I'm, I don't know. It's fun to talk about. What was the pace of life like in Washington, North Carolina, growing up? Maybe um, what it still is. Yeah, it's, I mean, well, it's interesting because one of the things, uh, one of the advantages of being from the coast is that um, back before railroads, uh, you know, boats were the way the, most of the travel occurred, and um, and boats were the way that the culture was disseminated. So, um, so every little town in the southeast um, on the coast um, was like a miniature New Orleans in terms of blends of things, and um, and so it was definitely slow. But but there was but there's um, 
you know, there was there was there was a lot of uh, sort of adventurous mixing going on too, um, and um, but it was definitely slower. I mean, one of the things now. I mean, I live in Indiana now, and that's not exactly you know a place you you think of as having a lot of speed, especially um, southern Indiana. But people drive faster. <laughs> I mean, and it's and they drive fast. Like I've done a lot of driving around here. You know, this week. Um, I mean, there's something about how fast they drive in Indiana. It's like there's somebody always right on your tail, and and uh, and I don't know what that is, but I don't. I haven't really experienced. I'm still trying to figure out what that's about. But you never get that in where I grew up, when people are like way back there, you know. So there's always plenty of space for kind of just slowly driving down the street. You know. It- strikes me that historians like me and documentarians like you are trying to slow things down long enough to figure it out, figure out what we're looking at, yeah. what the experience is, or what's important about it. It seems like that's fundamental to the kind of work that you do. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Definitely. I mean, um, I definitely would agree with that. I mean, slowing things down, I mean, I, it's not... It's something I have to battle too. You know, I have to, um, you know, I've started sleeping at night with my phone not next to the bed. You know, I've been doing a lot of things this year to try to slow myself down. Um, yoga and meditation and a lot of things. But it, 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 um, because it's easy to get sped up. And I think we have you know a real need for slowing down and paying attention in our world and it it um as i write in the i think in the epilogue of the book the words doctor and document come from the same root and i think that says it all that like uh um you're supposed to in order to heal you you have to pay attention and care and and that means slowing down Although the doctors aren't, you know, they, the system now isn't a good example of that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that those two words come from the same root to me sort of says it all. It's about healing and caring and paying attention. And that takes time. You can't, there's no formula. There's no uh, script. There's no pattern. It just takes time whatever amount of time it takes. Speaking of scripts, a lot of us start off with scripts in our life. The things we think we're going to do when we grow up. Was there anything you thought you were going to do when you grew up? That's a really interesting question that, that also is part of what I've been thinking about now about this which direction home thing. Because um, the writer John McPhee, who I admire, he wrote recently that he once went through his entire output which at this point I think he's around 80 so it was like 50 years of work and he marked everything he'd done that had a root in some interest before he graduated from high school and it was over 90% of what he'd done so I believe that's true for probably all of us that there's there's some there's there's a kernel of everything that goes back that far. So for me, I mean, the, the, there's like two things. There's like things that I was aware of and then things that kind of emerged later, you know, in my interests. Like if, you, if you'd asked me when I was 15 what I was going to do, I probably would have said I was going to play professional baseball, you know, or something related to sports. Um, I was just way into sports, playing sports and watching sports. Which is a, another one of these oddly integrated and equal environments. Um, sports uh, are weird, but but there, there's something oddly equal about it um, in terms of just the games themselves and and um, the merit-based sort of achievements. Um, it has it's, it has a way of not being racist, and you know, in a, in, a, in terms of what actually 
happens on the court or field, you know, it's just whoever is, has a, is better at their craft. Anyway, uh, sports were influential in my thinking and kind of a, this sort of egalitarian thing. Um, I mean, my, uh, my father was a physician um, and he, he was, you know, a small town physician um, and he, he, I remember he used to say um, that if you listen to a patient long enough, they will tell you exactly what's wrong with them. And something about that really stuck with me for sure, because that, that connects to the doctor documentarian thing. But I couldn't have told you when I was 16 that I was, I couldn't have articulated that, you know. I really don't know, you know, I think I was kind of naive and oblivious when I, when I was a kid. Is there anyone from that time in your life who understood what you would become perhaps better than you did or would not at all be surprised that this is how you turned out? Yeah, a high school English teacher. Um, his name was James Farrell, Jim Farrell. He Again, we're talking, you know, a, a small 10,000 people in my hometown, um, small public high school. And he, um, he assigned us to read the New Yorker magazine's Talk of the Town section every week. Like, like we all had to do it. And, and, and we had to, to, to prove we'd done it, we had to, um, like, write little summaries of each of the pieces. And that was an assignment, which seemed like, the worst kind of tedious, ridiculous work at the time. I mean, it was like, why do we have to do this? This isn't testing our acumen at all. And he also made us read the New York Times book review. And we had to, um, although we couldn't read that whole thing, it was long, but he, he, he made us summarize one of the book reviews every summer, every week. Um, and so we had those two things which seemed outrageous at the time. But, um, but it stuck, you know, it stuck with me, um, no doubt about it. And this sort of thing I've had, like as New York is my second home since I was a teenager, I'm sure that started then and had a lot to do with it. And he also um, uh, assigned me Bernard Malamud's um, uh, The Natural to read. And he knew that I would be drawn in by the baseball and he was a genius. He, he assigned that book to me, and I just loved it. And then right after that, he assigned um, Malamud's um, The Magic Barrel, which was a 13 short stories, or 11 short stories um, um, that Malamud wrote that came out, I think, in 1960 and won the National Book Award. And it had nothing to do with baseball, but it had a lot to do with New York and uh, documentary work. And that stuck with me, too. So um, I think he, unfortunately, he died way too young. He, Mr. Farrell died, um, I think he was only like 50 or maybe even less when he died. But I would love to talk to him right now. Uh, I'd love to have him read my book. And, you know, there's so much New York stuff in there and see what he thought of it. Sam Stevenson didn't know it, but his road to Cal State Fullerton began when the Postal Service delivered my mail one day in 1999 in St. Louis. I always looked forward to the latest issue of Double Take, a quarterly treasury of documentary photography and text. Inside this new issue, I found Nights of Incandescence, an article and photo spread of W. Eugene Smith photographs from the fabled Jazz Loft on 6th Avenue in New York City, written by Sam, who had already been working on Smith for a couple of years. That article turned out to be one of the streams nourishing my eventual book on jazz and photography, Blue Notes in Black and White. And through all this time, I watched Sam Stevenson more closely than he knew, wondering what would come next of his two-decade investigation of Smith's vast archive and chaotic life. But how did he come to work on Smith in the first place? Well, I had a, um, a very circuitous, I was an economics major in college. Um, and um, 
and then got a job. I had a very circuitous career. I got a, immediately got a job in banking, corporate banking. Um, I graduated from college in 89, December of 89, and then started working in corporate banking in a really nice job in Charlotte, North Carolina in January of 1990. So there was no in-between. And, um, and, but I was immediately sure that that's not what I wanted to do. Um, so I left that job and moved to Washington, D.C. and got involved in economic policy, which was more of my nature. Um, and did that for two or three years and then went back to graduate school in economics at North Carolina State University in 1993 and um, did that for a year then I was so the so then I went from there to um, Department of Religious Studies grad school at UNC Chapel Hill so whenever I tell this story people are like what your economics religious studies what what is what was that and for me the connection is value it's the, uh, the, the idea of value and how value is measured and I think, and that's really what I'm still doing in a way. It's like, um, what is valuable and why? Um, and um, so I was really kind of working on that thread of value, trying it in economics. I didn't really have the math skills to do it there. Tried it in religious studies and cultural studies and didn't really have the theoretical skills. And, and I sort of... Um, Around that time, I think it was 95, I took a class at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke um, with Robert Coles, who was the founder of the Center for Documentary Studies. And and I was also working at a bookstore um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a hugely important thing for me in my life. Um, the bookstore was like a university all its own. It was a really great independent bookstore called Quailridge Books. And it was right next to um, a, a grocery co-op organic, like a pioneering organic grocery store called Wellspring, um, which was later bought out by Whole Foods. Um, but the Wellspring was really kind of ahead of the, way ahead of the curve in terms of organic food. Um, and... Um, um, and so you had this grocery store right next to a great bookstore. It was so it was like everybody in Raleigh in that area, um, of a literary certain persuasion would end up in there. And I learned so much from those customers. But somewhere, and I still was reading like everything I could find. So um, there was uh, a moment there where I realized that instead of analyzing this problem of value that I saw which I think goes all the way back to my childhood as I described in this inequality um, between black and white sides of town. Um, then instead of trying to analyze it and figure it out, I wanted to document it. So, and just put forth examples rather than uh, explaining it, which I now sort of think is almost impossible. But, but you can, you can, put forth examples and then let them sort of rub up against each other and hope that they, um, you know, do something, speak on some level. So that's how I ended up in documentary work. And then I found uh, almost by accident um, a reference to, in 1997, um, to W. Eugene Smith's massive study of the city of Pittsburgh in, 19, in the 1950s. And I was, I was really fascinated by that city. Um, that's a really long story. But, um, but that city, Pittsburgh, I think, really kind of visually has all of these paradoxes right in front of you and contradictions of value. You have these, the biggest steel mills ever uh, built on the earth right next to some of the largest churches. And, and this you know, body of these rivers. So you have, you have natural resources, you have economics, you have like other types of pursuits and religious and spiritual pursuits. 
um, all right there, mixed up in a way that is unique in America. And I think Smith was um, was onto that, and so that's how I, that's how that connection was kind of made. When you started working with Smith, I'm sure you didn't think this was going to be a 20 year endeavor. Maybe you did. What no. did you think you were doing no, when you I, started? I thought I was writing a magazine article. I mean, that's what I was doing. Is I had an assignment from Double Take Magazine. Um, to do one article and it grew until you know until now you know so that I didn't expect it to go beyond the magazine article I remember that article very well <laughs> well um, you were one of the four people that was getting double taken <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but there was something in Smith's photography the photos that you chose for that article that spoke to the value documentation you're you're talking about. What mm-hmm. was that that you saw in those jazz law photos? Um, well, it was, I mean, what he did in the loft was he documented um, a world less dominated by iconography, which the jazz history is told from the point of view of what happened in the clubs and the studios at the very highest level. So jazz history is like the epitome of great man history. It's like an extreme version of that. And, but for every one of those great men, mostly men, there were hundreds of other musicians who either weren't as good or they weren't as good at promoting themselves. And Smith documented that. And I pretty much immediately realized that that's what he'd done when I just looked at the uh, labels on his tapes and saw a lot of names I'd never heard of. And I was a pretty big jazz head. Um, and I just, I just was like, wow, um, this is unique. And Somewhere along the line, somebody wrote that I liked bad music better than good music. Um, And I think they were trying to be funny. But the point is well taken that I like, even, you know, some of my favorite musicians are the icons too, you know, Thelonious Monk. But you never get to hear them failing. You know, you never get to hear them practicing. You never get to hear them trying things out that don't work. You rarely get to hear that. What's saved for posterity are the, the highlight moments, you know, the, the victories, the, the greatness. And what a, what a difficult way to teach, you know? If you're a student of, of composition and piano and the only thing you have is Monk's greatest um, achievements, what a daunting way to start. You know, so if you have his trials and errors and his practice and his over and over and over and over and over and over rehearsals for those town hall concerts, then you get some insight into what it takes. Um, And you don't come away thinking it's just some miraculous thing that's spun out of the heads of these guys, you know, and women too. Um, It takes a lot of work. So Smith got that. I think he he really... um, that's what his achievement at the end of the day, I think, is what he provides, what that work provides. And I, of course, I didn't know all that at the beginning, but I did have some some instinct that that's what was on there because of what was written on his tapes, um, just the chicken scratch labels. What challenged you more? The photographic archive, trying to grasp what that was all about? Or the audio portion of the archive, which was thousands of the audio tapes. for sure. The audio was more challenging um, because there was kind of a it just took a long time to raise the money to transfer those tapes to to a format that we could listen, and and then once we had it, 
it was took a long time to listen. Um, we used to, I think we used to say that there was a one to three relationship between the amount of time it took to listen and understand what was on a tape. So for every one hour of tape, it took three hours of listening. And so wasn't able to, I had, I had one guy who worked with me who listened to these tapes as his full-time job for 10 years. And he'll be the only person to have ever heard, you know, the extent of what Smith did. Um, and then we had a team of others listening as well. And then I would sort of base what I was going to hear on what they were hearing. So um, that was really hard. That's why it took so long. Photos we could get through in a pretty short amount of time, even though there were a lot of them. But um, but it was easy. It was easier. You're a documentarian investigating a person who essentially is living his whole life as a documentarian. That is, he is taping all the sounds around him. He's photographing what's out the window, what's upstairs. Um, is Eugene Smith a documentarian, or is he? How do how do you think of him as 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 somebody who is using the tools of documentary, but in a very obsessive and comprehensive way? How do you make sense of that? I don't know. Um, that really is the ultimate question. Um, you know, with his photographs. You could argue that he was driven by ego to some degree because he was had a for 10, 10 to 15 years, he had a really you know, the biggest platform of any photographer in American history with Life magazine when they had the biggest audience. Um, you know, the weekly staggering audience with their weekly circulation. Um, and he was he was really idolized, you know. He got his byline was seen by so many millions of people, made a big impact on a lot of people, and he was really well known. I mean, he was really a famous person at one point. Um, I like to say the only thing comparable in today's terms would be, not even today's terms, but like twenty years ago was like sixty minutes. Like sixty minutes had the kind of audience that Life Magazine had in terms of just the quantity of people. So Smith would have been like a correspondent on 60 Minutes in those terms. Um, and you could argue that Ego drove that because he got, and I do know that byline was important to him. He really liked it. Um, I mean, you don't go by the name W. Eugene Smith without some knowledge that people are going to see it. You know, that's a stage name, you know. Um, but what drove him to make the tapes, I really don't know. You know, there's no outlet. There's no assignment. Uh, it was some kind of obsessive compulsion that is probably unexplainable. Sam Stevenson's latest, Gene Smith's Sink, circles around the subject the way Citizen Kane does in an effort to understand what can and can't be known about a remarkable person. Looking for the artist by following his footsteps decades later, interviewing an extraordinary range of people. Smith's and Stevenson's journeys begin to merge. The arc of Smith's life becomes part of the writer's. Smith himself was a pioneer of the photo essay, the arrangement and sequencing of photographs to tell a larger story. And I wondered how Stevenson curated the work of a man so meticulous about the arrangement of images and how that influenced his approach to telling the story of Smith's life. Well, it, it really fit into my worldview um, that Smith's art was groups of pictures, although he was arguably even better at producing individual pictures. I mean, he was and his darkroom techniques were astonishing. But he really, 
thought in, term, in terms of visual sequences and groups of pictures and not just the individual picture. And that kind of fit into my worldview of, of trying to avoid iconography, you know, and trying to avoid a, a bigger view, what I call a wide-angle view in this book, is just trying to see more than one tight focus. And, and I learned that, I think, from him, you know, and trying to figure out what he was trying to, why he fought so hard with Life Magazine editors over control of his layouts, which was what, which is the crux of what he fought with their editors about, was the layout. Not the individual picture choices, but the sequences and the groups. Um, and before him, the photographer's job was over, really, when they snapped the shutter. And they would actually mail their film in, and somebody else would develop it and print it and make decisions on what was going to be laid out. And he um, he wanted to control all that. And uh, so I think I had to really learn a lot about what he was trying to achieve with those sequences. And so I tried to... Um, absorb that as much as I could, I could, but not try to duplicate it because there's no way to really do that. So I, I tried to absorb it as much as I could and then, um, and then use that to inform the decisions that I was making. I think it's interesting that you speak about the photos as a kind of decentralized way of, of collectively looking at something. It's similar to the way you approach the book by interviewing this gallery of people, all trying to piece together a kind of collective portrait of Smith, and Smith isn't actually there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I and then you have to leave so much out, you know, um, um, and that's really hard. And that's why the book was so late. Is um, I didn't want to just throw everything in and make it be a thousand pages. Um, um, and, you know, I had to make a lot of choices, like, you know, a photographer would have to make on a layout, you know. I think photographers, what I did with that book and trimming it down so much, a photographer would recognize that, or a sculptor, or a musician, or something like that. I know, um, this novelist, short story writer I've been reading a lot lately named Amy Hempel. She has a, um, a line in one of her stories that, where she says, um, in order to tell the truth, I have to leave a lot out. And I think that's really something, you know, that's that, um, something about including everything is false. <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm not sure how to articulate that. But um, um. well, you have to develop in order to have the confidence to do that. You have to be all right with a version of the truth as you found it, and not worry about where the rest of the source is. Right? I mean, yeah. You, you, you kind of made a a choice to boil it down to interviews and you on the trail mm -hmm. and everything else you're essentially saying isn't really knowable anyway. Right. It seems that's how I read it. But I, I think that's true. Think. Yeah. Like if you start trying to explain everything, you're just never going to actually get there. You know, it's going to be a mirage. You know, you're trying to arrive at a mirage. Interviews are really important for what you do. It's the yeah. core of this book that's just come out. What's your interviewing technique, and and why do interviews seem so essential to what you do? Well, my technique is not very um, easy to pin down because it really depends on the subject. I do a lot of preparation for an interview. Um, but I try not to have a plan for it, um, because I, I want there to be room for 
unexpected things to come up um, or unasked things. Um, and sometimes that doesn't work. So I have to sort of go to the list of questions. Um, um, but um, so it, it, it's really, um, it's kind of like what my dad said about his medical practice. If you listen to a patient long enough, eventually they'll tell you exactly what's wrong with them. And my interview um, style probably has something to do with that. Like if you just sit there, sometimes you'll 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 eventually the real stuff will start coming, but sometimes it's not true. In some ways, I want to find out what people want to talk about. I feel like there's something that people want to say. And I want to find that, like get to that and let them say it. Because often it's something they don't say in their, in their normal life. And there's not really a question you can ask to get to it sometimes. Because they're so used to burying it or so used to thinking it's not important that they don't really say it. And, and I, I, one of the things, I mean, I did, you know, like 500 oral history interviews and, um, I, one, at one point I got, I started realizing that people who said they had nothing to say were the best people because the people who really thought they had a lot to say were just going to regurgitate the same thing they always say, you know. But what they think they're supposed to say. Yeah, or something they just almost like rehearsed, you know, because they told so many people. So you, there's sometimes in interviews where I hear somebody say something, and I'm probably guilty of it too. Where I'm just like, God, they're saying this again, you know? And it's like, if you can get to something that is not that, you know, then that's where you want to be. And, but it's hard to, uh, it's hard to do that. It takes a lot of time. A lot of times it takes more than one interview. You know, it takes winning some trust and, and uh, you know, and it, and it can take a while. To get down to that level. When you started the book, did you think you were writing the quote full dress biography? Absolutely. The doorstop, the definitive, because yeah. that's what I thought you were doing. I mean, the book proposal that I uh, sent to Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, which they accepted, um, you know, and paid for, was for that. I mean, it, my proposal was 69 pages, it was like 19,000 words which was already like a one-fifth of the book, you know. So, I mean, uh, 125,000 words is about a 450-page book. And, you know, that that would be a reasonable biography length. I mean, you could go with 250,000 words, and it's 800 pages, 900 pages, which some people do. But, yeah, my proposal was for the big doorstop. I, I didn't really know what I was doing then, but, um, but, and I know now that I would never propose that again. <laughs> but, when did you know though? When did you know that that wasn't what you were doing? Oh man. I mean, I think I denied it until recently. I mean, I, I think, I think I denied, I think I, I denied that what I was doing was really this slim result until like two years ago. And uh, and I cut the manuscript by 65% um, starting about two years ago. Painful or liberating? Both. Yeah, both. Um, but I've already received, you know, some frustration from, particularly from Smith Nuts, you know, who just want more. But I think, um, yeah, so I don't know what to do about that. But, um, but I was really influenced a lot by um, a lot of music and making those cuts. You know, and there are these statements. I can't remember if it's Miles or Monk who said, it's not the notes you do play, it's the ones you don't play. So I had that in my mind. And Amy Hempel's line, I had to, in order to tell the truth, I had to take a lot out. Um, Things like that, 
a lot of different music was influencing me in making those cuts. And I think those kinds of cuts, like I said, a photographer, a filmmaker, a sculptor, um, you know, a poet, um, would go, oh, that's what I do every day, you know. It's just not what a historian does that much, or a biographer. Or a biographer, exactly. Yeah. To reduce it down to essentially two elements is a daring thing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I guess it's daring or, uh, I don't know. It's just what I had to do. I mean, I, somebody else could do something really different with the information I've gathered over the years. And it could be in its own way, you know, it's good or better than what I did. You've been 20 years with Eugene Smith. That's longer than a lot of marriages. That's <laughs> a long time. What are the the pleasures, rewards, as well as the pitfalls of drilling down that deep? I think without question the pleasures and the rewards are meeting the people I've met. Um, it's been a wonderful vehicle for meeting a lot of people. And that drive that drives me. Um, that's just fun, you know. It's fun to hear people's stories. Um, um, so I've con- I've considered it to be an enormous privilege, you know, an honor to be able to have done that. And I'll keep doing it. I, f- I need to find some more different um, vehicles. Um, it's funny. I had dinner in Venice two nights ago with a writer uh, who's much more well-known than me and he was basically begging me to get to stop doing anything related to Smith he, and, and he was like you gotta give this up um, and I understand that uh, and I have given it up you know but like we're doing this thing in Brooklyn later in the week and he was both impressed but also like you gotta stop doing these things and but I keep meeting all these people, you know, it, it hasn't, it's been, it's still like operating that way. So now I've met you guys, you know, in person, you know, so it's, and I'll meet more on here. It's like, I don't know, you know, um, so that's been the reward, the, the reward, the pitfalls are um, mostly the one that I'll come back to is, is uh, I, uh, or, or, or just come back to like, my writing mostly. I mean, I think I'm a good writer. Um, ever since I was in grade school and middle school, and people, I've usually done well in classes that involved writing. Not so well in ones like, like multiple choice. Um, and I've been commended for my writing ever since I was, you know, like 13. I wrote in school papers and things like that. Um, and. Uh, so sometimes I look back and wonder if I just focus on writing for the last 20 years and not all this other stuff, not, you know, videos and films and exhibitions and radio and all that. If I'd only been a writer, maybe I'd have more books. You know, I'd have, maybe I'd be able to um, make a living wage easier because um, I'd be, you know, more well-known writer. Um, so sometimes I lament that. But uh, but also know a lot of the writers haven't met all these people you know, that I've met. Sam Stevenson's works include Dream Street, W. Eugene Smith's Pittsburgh Project, and the Jazz Loft Project, photographs and tapes of W. Eugene Smith at 821 Sixth Avenue, 1957 to 1965. He also coordinated, edited, and curated Bull City Summer, a season at the ballpark which collected photographs and writings based on a season of baseball at the Durham Bulls minor league ballpark. In 2013, Sam found an organization dedicated to documentary expression called Rockfish Stew Institute of Literature and Materials. Rockfish what? So I spent 15 years at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke, and, and that's where I, that was my home base for the Jazz Law Project. And, um, and, um, and, and the Jazz Law Project ended up um, 
being a lot of different outcomes. It was my book. It was a documentary film. It came out last year. Um, an exhibition um, at the New York Public Library and traveled. Um, it was a radio series at WNYC in New York. It was a website. Um, it was a theater project that didn't really get off the ground, but we learned a lot. It's like all these different things. And, um, and that's how I wanted to work. Um, and it was hard. It was hard. Um, each one of those different collaborations with all those different institutions um, was challenging. Um, and, uh, and I just I, I felt like I had to create my own platform in order to do that and to have the freedom to um, pursue that many different collaborators. Um, and so Rockfish Stew was, was what I came up with. And, um, and the, the language there is really important. Rockfish is, was one of the, is the staple fish that comes from the waters where I grew up. It's a striped bass or, or rockfish um, or striper. And um, so rockfish stew is a literal dish. It's like what people, it's like a, a traditional dish that's made in the coastal North Carolina. Um, and I grew up eating it and it's great. And, uh, and it's one of these things where you put the ingredients in and just let it, you don't stir it, you just let it, um, you let it simmer for like all day. And so it's one of the, it took a lot of time, you know, and so um, I also like the word stew a lot because I think that is what this work is. It's a real stew and, um, and the stew's never the same. It's always a little different. Ingredients are different. Um, the way you put them together is never quite the same. And then Rockfish Stew Institute. I love those words, stew and institute, back to back. Because the question is, can you stew an institute? Or can you institute a stew? And I don't know. It's, it remains to be seen. Um, and then literature materials comes from a class that was taught at Juilliard um, by Hall Overton, who's been a key part of my research. He's a composer and pianist uh, who taught at Juilliard and, and other places and worked with Thelonious Monk and many other musicians. And his class at, at Juilliard was called Literature and Materials. And I asked Steve Reich, the composer who was a student of Overton's, I said, what in the world does literature materials mean? And he said, it means everything. So <laughs> everything was was under study. And uh, so that's that, that's how the name came about. And under that rubric, there are these multi-platform projects. Bull City Summer was one. How did that come about? Well, yeah, so Bull City Summer was um, actually a pretty much a direct outgrowth of the Jazz Law Project because you know, I'd spent... Um, all these years studying this one building in New York that had all these myriad people coming through it. And, but it was, you know, I was studying what happened a long time ago. And then back to this question of what's an example of, of a place where all walks of life come through the door um, in today's culture. And, and I was sitting in the outfield of, at the Durham Bulls Athletic Park on Labor Day um, of, I don't know what year it was. It was like 2010. And, and I realized that there was a huge diversity of people there. Um, um, and all ages, a real age diverse, um, crowd. And, and, it, and I just thought this is a building. This is a, let's get together a team of people and document this building over the course of a season. Instead of one person doing the work like Smith did, in the loft, we'll get a team of photographers and oral historians and writers and filmmakers, and we'll document exhaustively what took, takes place in this building over one year. So that's where that came from. Also, the other thing is I was kind of tired of living in the past, so I wanted to document something that was happening now. So Bull City Summer was the result. 
Sam Stevenson, thanks for joining us this week. Cal Thank State you. University. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence B. DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University. Our producer is Carrie Markin. For archivist Natalie Navarre, this is Benjamin Cothra. Until next time. <laughs>